Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. You're actually the first historian on the show, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, up, uh, up until now, I've mostly been interviewing scientists and artists, but I wanted to really get um, some historians on the show, especially to, to speak about topics that really fascinated me and, I, and which I know will fascinate our audience. Um, you, uh, you specialize essentially in the history of the United States. You are you are a historian. So you did a PhD in history, is that correct? Yeah, I, I did do a PhD in history and I um, definitely specialize in U.S. cultural history, uh, particularly in the 20th century. I'm not a traditional historian. Um, I, I have worked actually um, as a, in the food system as sort of a practitioner. Uh, for a number of decades and okay. you use my historical work to inform what I'm doing there. Right. And you also wrote a book. It, it is called Sowing the Seeds of Victory, American Gardening Programs of World War One. So would you say that you're a specialist in victory gardens? Yeah, I, I would say that's my little niche right um and and it aligns with my interest in school home and community gardens okay so let's actually get right into victory gardens what what exactly are victory gardens okay so victory gardens were um they emerged as a model and a sort of umbrella for school home community gardening during world war 1 and World War II. And so this was, you know, these were very large, iconic sort of home front mobilization efforts. And it's really interesting because um, the United States actually modeled its Victory Garden program in World War One on efforts that were being done in the UK and Canada. Um, and of, because, of course, um, those countries were um, combatants in World War One before the U.S. Um, entered, you know, the war. And there were a lot of reasons that um, governments were interested in citizens gardening. I mean, it, it wasn't just one reason. There were many reasons. Um, I'm, you know, more familiar with how it tracked in the United States. But you do have, um, I can't recall his name right now, but you do have a very good uh, Canadian historian who has done quite a lot of research about the Victory Garden movement in Canada in World War One. It's interesting because uh, I've mentioned to a lot of people that I was interviewing you and everybody asked me to ask you if it was modeled, if the program in the United States was actually modeled after the women in the UK who started the, the gardening programs there. Well, it's really interesting because um, the United States, as part of this sort of larger home front mobilization, um, the United States did, uh, there was a movement called the Woman's Land Army that was absolutely modeled after um, movement, you know, in the UK. And I've got um, a couple of chapters about that in my book uh, that I've written because, um, you know, in the U United States, you know, they were, the women that were interested in this were 
communicating very closely with women from the UK. And in fact, some of the leaders of the woman's land movement in the United Kingdom came and spoke at different women's colleges in the United States. And, you know, the the effort um, was linked very strongly um, in some places with uh, suffrage. Yeah, so this is what's really fascinating now from the U.S. perspective, which is that, let's say, well, let, let, let's focus on World War One here, uh, 1917 to 1919, where essentially the federal government did all a lot of the promotion for this. It was really, it really came from the from the feds, didn't it? Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, um, I think really that the ideas, uh, you know, there was a need. And definitely the government perceived a need. But really, these movements were championed by key individuals. And so they really represented, uh, especially in World War One, a very strong public-private sort of partnership. And so you had, again, um, for the uh, Victory Garden movement, one of the champions in the United States was a private citizen named Charles Lathrop Pack. And he was um, a wealthy philanthropist. He had very strong ideas about why this was needed and and why we needed to teach kids uh, about gardening and food. And so he, you know, definitely led the effort, but it joined with the government. And then a lot of the promotional materials um, obviously, you know, came from different government agencies and and that whole thing about, you know, the arts in World War One and World War Two, you know, just iconic artwork. And again, uh, much of that art was produced by artists, uh, leading artists who donated their time to the war effort. Yeah, this is what's amazing. Let's talk about the art for just a moment here, because uh, in your book, you do have some beautiful examples of, of pretty much like wartime propaganda posters, but they're they're really uh, aimed at the growing of gardens. And and like you said, they are just absolutely stunning. Um so who are some of the artists who uh, who helped to, you know, contribute to this? Well, I mean, too many to name, but um, one of my favorites um, is, a, is a woman, and um, she produced a lot of the art um, for the School Garden Army program, and um, she was actually Frank... Lloyd Wright's sister. And um, so if you go and look at that, her name is Maginal Wright Barney. And um, she was a very well-known children's artist. And, you know, magazines were very big in the this sort of period in um you know our cultural life and she would her work would have been very well known i mean it appeared in national magazines that were read by kids and adults and so she donated um her efforts and created a, a incredible series of posters um you know you had a lot of the artists who were uh, producing for leading national magazines like James Montgomery Flagg, um, who actually uh, created the uh, poster art that I use as an illustration 
on the front cover of my book. Okay. So so essentially, there's a public-private partnership. They have all this, this beautiful art going up. How long does it take for Americans to really adopt, you know, the whole planting of gardens thing? Oh, I think it happened, you know, the American experience in World War One was, uh, was relatively contracted compared, you know, to other countries. And so I think that um, it happened pretty quickly, right? And so um, the U.S. entered the war in April, and people were definitely, you know, putting in, um, you know, spring and summer gardens. And uh, it was really promoted and, um, you know, one thing that I should mention, too, is that the, the poster art was produced in um, multiple languages. It wasn't just in English um, because, you know, uh, America was a very diverse um, nation with a large immigrant population. And so these posters, they were ubiquitous. I mean, they were in lots of places. Um, you know, they would be in the windows of businesses, um, you know, people might put them in their front windows. Um, so really important effort. And, you know, um, they were in many ways the mass media or a mass media form in World War One, because, you know, it didn't have television, radio, you know, kind of in its infancy. And um, what I find very interesting now is that I, I look at this gardening movement right now that's being sped along and, and just, you know, appearing on all these social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook. And so I think that they're really kind of analogous. So you've got these amazing propaganda posters. They're, they're pinned up you know, on shops. People are participating in the programs. You, d you do mention in your book that there's a really youth education was a big deal. Uh, so they started teaching um, gardening in, in schools. Is that what happened? Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, school gardening was a really big deal at the turn of the last century and um, as was agricultural education for kids and uh, so there was a lot of interest in this already you know before the outset to the war so um, the united states uh, movement included a program called the united states school garden army and the curriculum was um, delivered through the Federal Bureau of Education. And uh, the curriculum was geared to different growing seasons in different parts of the United States. And it targeted urban and suburban youth. Really an interesting program. And um, Woodrow Wilson, you know, the president, felt that it was so essential that he made the initial funding uh, for the program available from war department funds. And I think that holds a lot of lessons for us in terms of this view of teaching kids about food production as being so essential to national security that you would actually fund a program with military funding. 
And I, I think, again, it, it always really gives me pause about these World War One and World War Two programs, how they they framed them very squarely within sort of a national security need in World War Two. Um, it basically becomes something the federal government calls nutritional defense. So it's it's very uh, the school garden program one of the most interesting home front mobilizations of World War One. Yeah, this is something that absolutely astounded me. Um, was reading about Woodrow Wilson and that the money, the, the, the programs are funded by the National Security and Defense Fund. Um, that I found absolutely mind-blowing. It's not something that I would ever think would happen today, I would hope. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder at what point after World War II did it become disconnected with national, national security? Well, I, I think that there were, you know, the World War One and World War II Victory Garden programs are very different in my mind. The World War One program, uh, much more grassroots and um, World War Two, you know, you, we've gone through in our country this great you know, depression, part of a worldwide depression. But um, we had something called, um, you know, which I know you've heard of the New Deal, right? right. And that 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 basically changed our food system. In World War One, there was actually a concern about um, about the security of the food system uh, and the demands on the food system because we didn't have a national highway system. That didn't actually come until post World War Two, um, when Eisenhower was president. So we didn't have a national highway system. Our railroad system was um, okay, but you know we were mobilizing millions of troops and sending them abroad. And there was actual concern about food security and, and if, if there was a disruption in the food supply and all these demands, um, would it lead to civil unrest? right, um, on the home front, because, you know, you, you also have to remember that in, in America, um, at, you know, sort of in the World War One era, there was a lot of tension, you know, Americans weren't 100% supportive of going to war. And there were, um, there were racial tensions, there were tensions um, between urban and rural that were significant. Um, there were um, women pressing for suffrage. There were um, there were labor movements. Uh, there was a lot of violence around labor. I mean, it was a very unsettled period in World War One, and then there was also a pandemic. So when I think of things, I today, I feel like today is closer to. World War One, sort of on you know the American home front, than World War Two. Um, I think again, what happened after World War Two is you have a New Deal that's remade the food system in American life. You've gone through this World War, and for many Americans, not all Americans, but for many Americans, the post World War Two period. <laughs> represents a period of um, of economic prosperity. You have the growth of the suburbs. You have people going across the nation 
um, to, um, you know, relocate for, you know, to defense work in places like Southern California, right? And, um, and the food system has really changed. And I also think, too, there's been a shift from um, that was really sped by the massive um, mobilization of troops um, during World War II, that um, you've gone from sort of a regional cuisine to a national cuisine. So a, a lot of changes post-World War II. And with the rise of the suburbs, I always um, like to share with people a sort of anecdotal experience uh, from my family, which is that my father was a child in World War II, and his family moved um, away from their home to um, a, a military field in Texas. It was a very disruptive period. They had a victory garden. He always remembered that vividly. They had a victory garden. And, um, you know, then, and he knew how to garden as a kid, but after, um, you know, he was in the Korean, you know, a Korean era veteran. And then he went, um, you know, because the, the war created this GI bill, right? The U S created a GI bill. So a lot of Americans post-World War II and in the Korean uh, war era got, were able to access higher education through the GI bill. So my dad ends up in a suburb of Philadelphia and um, the vegetable garden is hidden in the backyard and his focus is on um, sort of ornamentals and lawns, right? Um, so I think that there was that kind of cultural shift as well. Yeah, I actually didn't even think about how the addition of highways would change things, the, addition, the, the way that people can mobilize all of a sudden. Well, and and also changing how we eat, right? And so that national highway system in the United States, again, uh, Dwight Eisenhower um, was the one who, um, you know, signed that legislation. And, you know, Dwight Eisenhower had been um, a young military officer in World War One, and he had led... Um, a convoy across the United States to test road readiness. And that experience really impacted him. And so this national highway system in the United States, it enables strawberries that are grown two miles from my home um, in, you know, the winter in February to be, you know, end up in Washington, D.C. And, you know, eaten there. And so it, it really has enabled um, the, the food system to be sort of more distributed. Yeah, one of the things that's happening actually in the information technology industry, it became a Twitter hashtag at one point, is that a lot of people are leaving their jobs in technology and going back to farming. Like they actually want to become farmers. So I find that really interesting because it means that right now there's, I mean, we're going to talk about right now soon, I, but, but I wanted to focus on this because it means that, um, like you said, the, the food has been nationalized, internationalized. And I think people want a sense of meaning much in the same way that people back then felt a sense of duty, perhaps, to their country. Yeah. And I have to tell you, uh, during this pandemic, I think in terms of, you know, in the early days, we definitely had some disruptions, right? We, we weren't, you know, people, you know, the, 
the big meme was toilet paper, right? But I think one of the bright spots in this pandemic has been local and regional food systems, right? I mean, my my CSA has come through. And um, when I've chatted with people at uh, the CSA, they say they have many more customers. So I think that there is going to be um, a refocusing on the potential of local and regional food systems. So one of the things, of course, that I study is I study the history of gardening movements in general in America. And, um, you know, we've had periods where we've had lots of interest in school, home, community, and even workplace gardens. Obviously, World War One, World War Two, but we also had um, a a sort of a surge of interest in the 60s and 70s as part of the environmental and back to land movement in this country. And then also um, we had, uh, particularly in the state where I live, California, there was a big resurgence of interest in school gardens in the late 1990s um, through the 2000s. And then of course the Obamas put in the White House garden which was the first time since World War II that there had been a vegetable garden um, on the White House grounds, right? And during just a couple of months after um, the Obamas put the White House garden in, um, there, the U United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, uh, built something called the People's Garden, which is an organic garden that's right on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And I, so there was a lot of interest. What I'm seeing now is really in many ways dwarfing at, right? I, I see evidence of interest in gardening everywhere from seed companies selling out to um, the sort of, you know, apps like uh, Nextdoor or community groups on Facebook with people looking uh, for that stuff. And one of the things that I've, I've thought about a lot recently is that when the Obamas put in this garden at the White House, you know, Facebook was still a pretty young platform and there wasn't Instagram. I mean, Instagram wasn't even a platform. And now, again, I think that a lot of this um, interest in garden, gardening is being amplified by social media platforms. And I actually think that it's going to be a lasting movement. I think so too. Actually, now that you mention it, I'm seeing a lot of people not just gardening, but cooking with what they've, what they've planted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, another sort of pandemic artifact is um, the, you know, bread making, right? Um, right. Food, I mean, how, how much sourdough on Instagram, right? In the earlier days of the pandemic, not being able to get yeast. Um, you know, um, I, I get a lot of my baking stuff from uh, King Arthur. And I mean, they were out of certain kinds of flour and yeast you know, for a long time. And I think um, people are also doing more sort of food preservation. And you're right, a lot more cooking at home, sort of at, you know, out of necessity. But I, I do have lots of questions about are we, you know, how can we sustain this? Will we, you know, will we be able 
to sustain this? Um, are would there be other ways that we could sort of press the advantage that we have right now with the interest in gardening to really um, create more sort of public policies that would support uh, school, home, and community gardens? I mean, what's the next step? What, um, how many new farmers might come out of this, right? I have a lot of questions. I'm interested to see what happens next. Me too. I, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I, I really wanted you on this show is because it, it's something that has been interesting me as well. My partner and I are going to move to the East Coast. We're going to you know create our own farm because we live you know, in the downtown of Ottawa. And which brings me to my next topic, which is, you know, there's a quote that you have in your book. It says, a, hung a hungry man is not a free man. And there are a lot of hungry people in these cities in the United States who don't have access to good food. They're eating at 7-Eleven. That's where they get their groceries. Uh, what's a good way to take the, our lessons from World War One, World War Two? And maybe incorporate that into the cities. Well, I, 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 and it's it's not just the cities, right? And I think one of the um, one of the things in my own country that I've been incredibly concerned about is, um, you know, the rising rate of hunger and issues with food access, and how during the pandemic. Um, how we feed kids who typically some kids that, you know, get a couple meals a day at school and how that's happened. And, you know, school districts have done a heroic job. Uh, they've been very creative in terms of uh, setting up places in the community or, you know, there have been some districts that have basically um, used bus drivers to deliver school meals to kids. I mean, school districts have been heroic, the nutrition staffs, um, absolutely heroic. But, you know, my whole thing is like, why are we in such an issue about food access and food security anyway? And one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that access to land is a privilege and not everyone has access to land. And that to me, one of the, the best things about the World War I and World War II gardening programs was the sort of shift in ethos um, about private land and also the use of public land right, that you would see um, in the United States that there were gardens on the National Mall and um, there were easements uh, like utility and railroad easements made available to people. And so I feel really strongly that we need to, especially in cities, but in other places, we need to reconceptualize how we use public land. And uh, for me, I always think of going back to sort of like the commons, right? And, you know, Boston Common in World War I, um, the Girl Scouts cultivated potatoes, right? That how do we make land accessible and not just land, but how do we get resources and technical assistance uh, for people in communities so that we can realize the potential of school, home, community, 
gardens to help communities increase their food security, increase their resilience, um, you know, also as a way of considering how we need to adapt as individuals and communities and nations and a global community to climate change. So um, I think fundamentally we need to be much more radical in terms of how we approach this. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned land. Uh, one of the things that I had been considering if I wasn't going to move somewhere where I could have access to land was the uh, the hydroponic indoor gardening systems are becoming much, much cheaper these days, which I see as a good sign. Is that something that you're seeing uh, at the forefront of kind of this gardening movement? Or are you still mostly pr primarily concerned with the lack of access to land? Well, I mean, I I think that that is a really good option, and I've seen some really interesting hydroponic operations. Um, but I I do also think that we we need to have a lot of different strategies. So that could be one part of the response and one part of the strategy. But um, I I do think that we need to. Um, really look at communities as food shed. We need to be, um, you know, these food policy council. I mean, your country has Wayne Roberts, right? Um, uh, you know, who I know, and I just am a huge fan of Wayne's work. Um, you know, food policy councils, we need more of that. And I think that we should be doing more to sort of map food shed because we definitely have the technologies and there are a lot of those kinds of projects going on right now but i just think um a lot of this for me is really at the neighborhood and community level and it really sometimes takes just one person i want to i want to specific specifically bring up uh jane bone haynes i think is how you pronounce her name uh she was mentioned in your book she was quite the quite the courageous woman wasn't she she was and i'm really glad that um you brought her up i mean she's a really interesting historical figure and um she was involved as as you know because you've looked at the book um with uh creating a woman's horticultural school in Pennsylvania um, called the Pennsylvania School of Horticulture for Women in Ambler, Pennsylvania. And it was interesting because um, I, um, I lived in that area as a kid. And um, so she really had an impact and that horticultural school for women um, really had an impact in terms of training women to work in small-scale agricultural operations. Uh, and, you know, this was prior to World War I. And then um, many of these women went and worked in the Woman's Land Army, uh, you know, during World War I. And um, it was really an incredible sort of network of um, sisters of the soil that they formed. And it's really interesting because one of the um, leading schools of sort of horticultural education in the United States is at Temple University and it's Ampler 
is the is the school and um that actually uh what the work that jane did that school was eventually um merged uh with temple university you know it went under the wing of, of temple and just a fantastic history there it's funny sisters in the soil sounds like the kind of facebook group that you'd need to actually make this movement go <laughs> yeah yeah um i i think so and you know there are um there's so much interesting work um you know female farmers i i love looking at um uh that that work right now and there's um a really interesting um podcast and a project called um in her boots um that is um i think it's under moses which is the midwest um organic sort of organization in the united states okay yeah i'm going to check that out because i'm very curious about it uh, so you're really, I mean, you're really pushing for this to take off. I mean, it is, there is a, a, a momentum. I, I, I definitely feel it. I felt it since the pandemic began, like you said, with the bread, uh, with, you know, flour not being available, people cooking, baking, realizing they're not very good at it, but persisting with it. Um, how do you think that we can keep the momentum going? Well, I, I think that there are a lot of things we can do. So in the United States, we have um, something called the Cooperative Extension, and it's basically a national um, service uh, that's run under land-grant universities, and it's a partnership between the federal government, the USDA, the land-grant university in every state, and local government, county government. And so um, under the Cooperative Extension Service, uh, we have, you know, we provide technical assistance for farmers. There is the 4-H Youth Development Program. And there's also a program called the Master Gardener Program. And it's basically these incredibly um, highly trained volunteers and they are available in um, every, I think, you know, most counties in the United States. And it strikes me that if you could, um, you know, make that more uh, well known to the public, in some communities, it's very well known. Uh, these are people that, you know, have the ability to provide uh, technical advice and assistance and um, it connects with the land grant. But I think it's a whole suite of things. I, I think that there have to be some public policies um, in communities developed around land, around food shed mapping, around school nutrition policies that might make it easier to incorporate um, like school food from school gardens into uh, school lunch programs. I think, um, you know, even having some sort of, I mean, I'd love to see in the United States and everywhere, actually, some sort of national educational curriculum that um, teaches youth about food and agriculture and climate change and environment and human nutrition and maybe also provides practical skills. I mean, when I was growing up, I was sort of at the cusp of where um, maybe the sort of 
first group of young women in my high school who didn't all take home economics, right? I didn't take home economics. My sister, six years older, she went through the home economics programs. Um, there was a, actually a program called FHA, Future Homemakers of America, in our public school. And it was a, like a local chapter of that. And so I, I think giving people practical skills, practical support um, is really important. I think it's a whole suite of policies. It's funny you, you brought up the home ec programs because there's been talk talk about bringing those back in the schools here in, in at least in Ontario. I'm not sure about the rest of Canada, but that's definitely been on the radar. So that's a good thing. Uh, I am curious about the United States, though, because you guys are in an, an election cycle. You've got an, an, an election coming up. And I'm curious if any of the candidates have been talking about food security or agriculture. Is that on anybody's radar? Oh, I mean, they, they have. Um, I mean, there are platforms for it, right? Um, I, I think that it's, you know, it's not you know, we've only had one presidential debate. I don't, I don't know that we'll have any more, right? Um, given that uh, President Trump has um, been diagnosed with COVID. I don't know that we'll have another presidential debate. They didn't even get to, uh, to that. They, they didn't even get, in my opinion, enough, um, you know, on climate change. We do have a vice presidential debate scheduled for this next week. And I am hoping that there might be an opportunity to discuss, um, you know, things like climate change and food policy. I'm not expecting that they're going to get to food and ag policy, which is really a shame because it's such a critical issue. But I think that, um, you know, we are... <sighs> I, it's we are in a challenging situation right now in the United States. Have you seen any um, talk about it at the at the state level? You're in California, so I, oh, I'm wondering. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I I think that um, you know California tends to have more progressive public policies, and I I think um, in many ways we we sometimes model progressivism and policies and lead. And then others would join. I, um, I still think we're not um, talking enough about it. But I do have to tell you that um, as part of the pandemic response, um, Gavin Newsom's administration in California came up with a couple of programs that were kind of interesting, where they connected, um, you know, small businesses that were like restaurants and communities with senior citizen feeding. Right to to sort of help uh, restaurants maybe stay in business um, during the pandemic and you know feed senior citizens. So I, I think that there have been um, you know some creative um, you know things like that. I'm I'm waiting to see what happens um, you know 30 days from now when we've had an election. Yeah. Uh, this hopefully this episode will actually air right before the election. Uh, so I mean, I think it'll put this topic on people's radar. At least I hope that that's that's the intention. It's really to kind of educate the American people and also people around the world. I think you know if you live in France and you've always wondered about gardening, I think this might you know help prompt new yeah. ideas. And I I do have to tell you too. I I would be remiss in in not saying. Um, 
that there is that faith communities in the United States are also doing some really good work in terms of um, gardening and agriculture, um, always, but in, in this period as well. And um, I mean, they are, you know, there's uh, the Episcopal Church in the United States has um, uh, a new effort called Good News Gardens, and they are, you know, helping congregations figure out how they might do gardens to serve their communities. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting. This uh, interest in gardening is really widespread. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Do you do you feel optimistic about the future of gardening? You know, I I do. I really do. I again, I feel that there um, that there's more potential. Uh, and you know, I I think it it's a it's a pretty diverse umbrella, right? I mean, I'm having people now, you know, that come to me. They they call them victory gardens, or they call them pandemic gardens. Um, I spoke with a group affiliated with Rutgers University, um, and their program is is uh, calling them climate gardens, right? I mean, there are so many reasons for people to be gardening. I mean, it's not only about food production. It's about um, education, like science and STEM education. I mean, the potential for um, the educative possibilities of gardening, of gardens are unlimited, right? Um, it, you know, people wanting to, you know, learn more about climate change and gardening, um, people doing it. Um, you know, I, I garden in no small part because it... Um, it helps my mental health. It improves my outlook. I, you know, I live in a county that's one of the leading producers of fruits and vegetables um, in the United States. And we, we grow fruits and vegetables year round here. And it's really easy for me to, uh, to get, you know, nearly any fruit and vegetable that I want um, pretty readily through a CSA or a farmer's market. Um, but, you know, we continue to garden because it's important. I've got two last questions for you. Number one, uh, if somebody wants to start gardening but has no idea where to, where to start, what would you recommend as a good starter vegetable? Well, I, I think it depends on where you live. But one of the things that um, I, you know, always share with people and, you know, if they're gardening with kids, carrots propagate quickly, right? They, <laughs> they, they, they germinate quickly. So carrots, um, obviously, I think, you know, squash. Um, but again, it really depends on where you live. Um, and there are so many online resources available for gardening. Um, if you're gardening with kids, one of my favorite resources is the Texas A&M University Junior Master Gardener Program. They have a, a wonderful Facebook page. Um, they have been doing all these incredible interactive, um, activities for kids throughout the pandemic. The page is loaded with videos. That would be a resource. If you're in the United States, go to your master gardener program website, 
find the Master Gardener program in your community and you will have a wealth of information um, about gardening in your specific growing zone. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And the last question is, in your book, you, you touch on the topic of social memory. So I was just really curious. I needed to know, what's your favorite memory in a garden? You know, I've spent so much of my career in gardens. Um, I have a, a couple of favorite memories. Um, one of my favorite memories of gardening is um, I volunteered to lead a um, a school garden program at my daughter's elementary school, which is about um, two blocks from our home. And I did that from the time she was kindergarten through the end of her fifth grade year. And then um, I, I, I was joined in that effort by my elderly neighbor, Vance Askew, who was also a University of California master gardener. And he had been, um, he was a retired naval pilot and he was just a fantastic gardener. And he, he lived right around the block from us. And so every, every week, you know, literally for that many years, um, Vance would swing by my house in his beat up pickup and I would hop in and we would go and garden with kids. And the opportunity to see that sort of um, knowledge transfer um, from this really wonderful, knowledgeable older man, and it wasn't just gardening, it was life stories with these kids, and to watch these kids um, basically, uh, because, you know, it is a very small school, and most of the kids, most of the kids were there from kindergarten through fifth grade, and um, so we saw the same kids over the years, and to watch their growth as students, and, you know, growing into wonderful young people and then um to still have them now and um the group that i tracked with for all those years they're now 24 25 um when i meet them in the community or i connect with them on social media to tell me how meaningful that activity was for them and how it really did influence um, healthy behaviors, but mostly it, it mattered. And so that is definitely, I, I think it's, it's hundreds of memories within that sort of larger memory. One of my other best memories was, um, going to, um, the White House garden and, um, with a small group, um, of people and getting a really, um, special tour of the White House garden. And I, that was a day we went there. And then um, later that year, I went to the USDA garden. And those were two days when I was so proud of my country. I just went, I love my country. This is so wonderful. It's fascinating, because I actually just started watching the West Wing for the first time. 
I am absolutely fascinated, right? Because I mean, of course, it's fiction, but I'm suddenly very, very interested. And so I'm also very, very jealous that you got to go to the White House Gardens, I have to admit. <laughs> it, uh, it was a wonderful experience. It's really, um, it's really a wonderful garden. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so listen, uh, Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith, I'm blessed essentially to have had you on the podcast. I think it's fantastic. I wrote a little note after I read your book. Uh, I said that your book uh, felt like a plea to bring food production and food security back to the forefront of U.S. politics and public policy. I hope that that happens. I hope that people go out and uh, either borrow the book from the library or if they can afford it, go ahead and buy the book. And uh, do you have a website that you'd like to share? I I do. Um, My website is rosehaydensmith.com. Dot com and the Rose Hayden Smith is all run together and I um, I put blog posts up there um, and I also have some good I link to other resources and I also um, have a little gallery where I put up some posters and and give a little education about that and I encourage people also to find me on social media um, I'm on Twitter I'm on Facebook. Um, yeah. And I'm, I always love to talk to people about this. And thank you for having me today. Apologize for the really noisy environment. <laughs> That's okay. We'll, we'll try to cut out as much as we can. Anyway, uh, Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith, th- thanks again for coming to the program. Thanks. You take good care. Thanks. You too.